Isaiah 31 and 32, let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet He is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helpers will stumble. And he who is helped will fall. And they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, As a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter From the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land. Then the eyes of those who see will not be closed, and the ears of those who hear will give attention. The heart of the hasty will understand and know, and the tongue of the stammerers will hasten to speak distinctly. The fool will no more be called noble, nor the scoundrel said to be honorable. For the fools speak folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord, to leave the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands. Rise up. You women who are at ease, hear my voice. You complacent daughters, give ear to my speech. In little more than a year you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare, and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breasts for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exultant city, for the palaces forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until... The Spirit is poured upon us from on high, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field, and the effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. 
My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings and in quiet resting places. And it will hail when the forest falls down, and the city will be utterly laid low. Happy are you who sow beside all waters, who let the feet of the ox and the donkey range free. Thus ends the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask his blessing as we consider his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you are good and what you do is good. We long to hear your good word. And so we pray that you would forgive the one who preaches his sins, for they are many. And you would help us all to fall upon your mercy, which is more, which is greater, which is great enough to cover over all our sin. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen. I'm not a nihilist, nihilist, but I think I understand them sometimes. Nihilists, for those who intentionally forgot everything from Philosophy 101, are those who reject all religious and moral principles and think that life is meaningless. And I'm not one of those. Why do I think I understand them sometimes? Because sometimes life is crazy, confusing, it's out of joint. Sometimes we can't get along. Sometimes it feels like almost everyone is overreacting to something and that almost no one thinks they're the problem. Sometimes life feels very fallen. I had a friend in seminary. He had two standard reviews for movies. One of watch a movie, he'd say one of two things, almost guaranteed. Peter, if you hear this illustration, I'm sorry, but you know it's true. Peter review number one, always said with serious, heartfelt reflection, that was really redemptive. Seemed to apply to anything with a good or happy ending. And then Peter review number two, also said with deep, serious, heartfelt reflection, that really showed the depravity of man. He said it so much, we made a joke out of it, but he was on to something. Most of life shows glimpses of man's fallenness or depravity, our hangover with sin. And that might lead to hopelessness, meaninglessness, nihilism, despair, depression. But that's not the end of the story. See, Isaiah 31 and 32, it's a middle chapter, not just for Israel, but for all of us. Isaiah 31 and 32, it's written to Jerusalem, whose leaders are drunk and hungover. Chapter 28, whose only hope is a failed Savior named Egypt, who once enslaved them. They are surrounded, this passage says, by fools and scoundrels, complacent women at ease with the present. Even though disaster is coming, God promises it. But you see, this is actually my friend Peter's favorite kind of movie because it shows you both the depravity of man and the redemption of a loving God. Isaiah 31 and 32, fools abound, harvests fail, other bad things happen, but God provides salvation and shelter and shalom or peace, wholeness, restoration. But it starts here, our first point, the God who woos and pronounces woe. The God who woos and pronounces woe. Chapter 31, verses 1 through 9. Why is woe pronounced upon God's people? 31, verse 1. 
Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Remember, if Egypt were a football coach, she would have a losing record. But Israel is looking for for something, someone, anyone to trust, anyone besides the Holy One of Israel whom she cannot see at the moment. So Egypt and her war horses will just have to do. Anyone who can promise relief from mighty Assyria, the perpetual threat to Israel in Isaiah's day. And in God's kindness, he reminds them that Egypt is not just a forbidden Savior, but a fruitless Savior, a faulty Savior. But God must avenge this wrong. Look at verses 2 and 3. And yet, He is wise and brings disaster. The word is very similar to the word for evil. He does not call back His words, but will arise against the house of evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, the helper will stumble And he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. They thought they were wiser than God, but they were wrong. In fact, they were evil, and Egypt was helping them do evil. And yes, God calls his own covenant people the house of evildoers. The ones who had received such a great salvation at the Red Sea and elsewhere, they were capable capable of evil doing. Do we think that we're better, God's people, many years later? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12, Lest any, Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. Israel wanted God's prophets, we saw last chapter, to speak smooth things, happy things. Even Presbyterians can do the same sometimes, but God, God only promises good news to those who turn from their ungodly ways who kill their sin by the Spirit's help before it kills them. And for those who don't, who are convinced that their life is fine, nothing needs to change, look at chapter 32, verses 9 through 11 for more of that. For those who think everything's fine, God pronounces woe. And you know, doesn't doesn't everyone want God to pronounce woe on someone? Watch the news, read the paper. Side note, studies show that the media, right or left, makes more money off of you, off of anyone. The angrier you get, the more often you come back to feed the beast. We all want God to pronounce woe, to punish evil. The question is how we define evil. The other question is what can we do about the evil in the world out there? Supposedly, the great Christian author G.K. Chesterton once read a newspaper article that wanted readers to respond to the question, what is wrong with the world today? Chesterton supposedly wrote back, dear sirs, I am, I am what's wrong with the world today. And if you're ultimately trusting in Egypt, you're one thing that's wrong with the world today. If you're ultimately trusting in the government or a single government official, if you're trusting in the stock market rebound, the next stimulus check, no, I'm not trying to start a rumor or a new job or whatever. If you're trusting in any of those things, 
then you're trusting in the wrong things. Woe to you. But understand, woe, woe is not final judgment, not usually in the Bible. God often uses this word more like the word W-H-O-A. Woe, slow down. I'm warning you. The bridge is out. The road you're on is headed for disaster. It won't lead to happiness. Egypt, Egypt was not the solution to Israel's problems. And many of our hopes for happiness will ultimately leave us empty as well. If they're the only thing, if they're the ultimate thing that we trust in, the thing that's going to make everything okay. But you know, God also does more than just pronounce woe in this chapter. He also woos his people. Oh, and if you think that language is too romantic, too touchy-feely, then go read Isaiah 40. Go read Hosea 2, especially verse 14. Better yet, read the rest of Isaiah 31, especially verse 6, but we'll start at verses 4 and 5. The heart, oh, that's 32. Hold on. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, And when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill like birds hovering. So the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. God is not threatening Judah, his people, the southern kingdom. He is not saying that he's going to attack her like a lion, though she certainly deserved it. No, God is saying, I am so much better than Egypt or whatever Savior you're trusting in. I am not here to use you, addict you, or take all of your money. I'm here to guard and protect you like a mother lion guards her young, like a bird who hovers to protect her young, who protects, delivers, spares, and rescues. In that word, spare, Sounds like the Hebrew word for Passover. As Andrew Peterson once sang of the original Passover, Lord, let your judgment pass over us. Lord, let your love hover near. Don't let your sweet mercy pass over us. Let your blood cover over us here. And out of this great promise that the Lord will pass over us in judgment, cover over our sin with the blood of the Lamb, that He will spare us. Out of this promise comes a great plea. Verse 6, Turn to Him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. Turn to Him. Turn to the one who was despised and rejected by men, whose Messiah would be despised as well, Isaiah 52 and 53 says. Turn to Him. Despite your previous rebellion, you see, God is not hung up on your failure. We might be at times. He's not hung up on your failure. He is not so hurt by your sin that he becomes distant. He's not afraid of rejection like us. No, God is ready right now to woo you, to call you, to draw you to himself. All of this makes me think of God's Pursuit of Naomi. You remember Naomi from the book of Ruth? We looked at her last year. Naomi who said, don't call me Naomi, meaning pleasant. I'm not pleasant. Call me Mara, meaning bitter, because I am bitter. Because I went away full, but God has brought me back home empty 
No sons, no husband, no livelihood, no hope. But God kept coming after her. As David Strain said of Naomi, and by extension all of us, God isn't interested in mere lip service, but neither is he put off by your backsliding. He is in hot pursuit of your heart. If you've sought out Egypt or any other false savior, then God, yes, he says woe to you, but God has not stopped wooing you. He isn't brooding. He isn't trying to hurt you the way that you hurt him. No, he just wants you because he knows that he will satisfy you more than all the other stuff you're chasing. He knows that once you turn to him as he calls you to do, that you'll throw away your idols because they won't satisfy you anymore. He will satisfy you. And he can deliver you from all the things that terrify you. So that's what happens in verses 8 and 9. Assyria falls, it says, but not by the sword, not by man. Third week in a row, it's a reference to God's miraculous deliverance at the end of Isaiah 37. But the point is, God is a better Savior. And whatever you can find, then whatever you can dream up, and even if you've tried every other alternative, God is calling you back. In wrath, He remembers mercy. And He calls us to rest in His mercy, in His shelter. In fact, that leads to our next point. After the God who woos, and pronounces woe, we also see this. Secondly, the God who shelters the weary and foils the fool. The God who shelters the weary and foils the fool. Chapter 32, verses 1 through 8. God's people needed this word because they were desperate for a Savior. So desperate they sought out the wrong Savior. Anyone who would tell them what they wanted to hear. Because sometimes God gives us the leaders and saviors that we deserve. In other words, sometimes we deserved Egypt and her buffoonery because we refused to trust God. But sometimes God gives us the leaders we need, even when we don't deserve it. And praise the Lord for that, because when would we ever deserve the salvation that our God sends? When would we deserve it? By the way, another day, twist my arm, we'll discuss this quote from The Dark Knight, the hero that Gotham deserves, but not the one it needs right now. Another day. For now, look with me at chapter 32, verses 1 and 2. Behold, a king will reign in righteousness, and princes will rule in justice. Each will be like a hiding place from the wind, a shelter from the storm, like streams of water in a dry place, like the shade of a great rock in a weary land, or as we will sing after at the end of the service, like the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. One day God will send the weary. He will send them a righteous ruler, a ruler who rules righteously, who always does right, who will not oppress his subjects or take advantage of them because he came to serve, not to be served. As Max Dupree has said many times, good leaders don't inflict pain. They bear pain. They absorb pain. And in turn, this leader, he will raise up other good leaders, other godly leaders who also rule rightly. Each one of them will be like a hiding place, a shelter, someone to turn to when you're in trouble. 
few weeks ago, I read a quote. It went something like this. Those who are broken will eventually know where to find grace. And I said, amongst other things, I hope we're a church like that. And actually, I'm, I'm proud to say we have been that. Not perfectly. But we have been that more and more. Our mission statement, we talk about walking with people through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life. The past year, our pastors and elders, we've become more aware of more problems that require our help, and and that's okay. That's the way it should be in the church. If you're hurting, then you should ask for help, whether you're a founding member, a first-time visitor, or somewhere in between. None of our leaders here are perfect. We know that. But we're striving to be the shelters from the storms of life. As I said, we're not perfect. As Paul said, we are not sufficient for these things. But God makes us sufficient. Paul says in the same letter, God who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are, on, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Because who is the ultimate king that Isaiah is talking about? Who is the shade, the shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land? It wasn't King Hezekiah or any other king. Not any of the kings who wore the costly crown. No, it was the king of glory. The servant king. The one who wore the crown of thorns, costly in its own way. The one who bore our pain in punishment so that our weary souls could find rest in Him, so that we can see and hear and understand and know the truth that sets us free, as verses 3 and 4 talk about, so that we can see beyond the clouds to the sun's glorious light. If you've been found in Christ, not having a righteousness of your own, but having that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, you've been found in Him, then you know some of His shelter and freedom, some of His joy and light and knowledge. But you also long for more. You know that there is more waiting, that it will one day get better. Just like Isaiah's original listeners knew. And not only does, does Christ give light and rest to the weary, He also gives, you might say, restlessness to the foolish. Those who oppose his ways. You might say he comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comfortable or the complacent. Verses 5 through 8, they talk a lot about the fool and the scoundrel. Great word. Some translations call him the rascal. It says the fool won't be called noble any longer. Why not? Well, fools are fools because their schemes will ultimately be foiled by God. You see, fools are good at fooling others. For a while, anyway. They convince others that they're wonderful, noble people, even though their hearts are, it says, busy with iniquity and deceit. Verse 7, they ruin the poor with lying words. I believe that's said of the scoundrel, but they seem fairly equivalent, those two. But when King Jesus comes again, all the fools will run And hide because he will see through their mischief and their lies. He will expose them. The truly noble, by God's grace, will be seen as noble. The truly wicked and foolish and scoundrelish will be seen for the fools they are. 
You know, when Batman or anybody, you know, one of the good guys comes, the bad guys run, right? Because they fear him. And when King Jesus comes, the bad guys will be cast away forever. And the good and righteous remnant who hopes in Christ, they will have nothing to fear ever again. All that will happen one day in the end. But, but what about now? And why am I asking what about now? Because I think the metaphors here imply this. God's shelter for the weary is still, right now, mightier than the foolishness of fools. Again, why do I say it? Well, we'll look at verse 2's metaphors for a moment. Hiding place from the wind, shelter from the storm, water in a dry place, shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land. All of these are temporary shelters from hostile circumstances. None of these things conquer the wind, the storm, the desert. They just outlast them. God will, yes, one day conquer all of his and all of our enemies, but what do you do until then? You take shelter. You outlast the enemy by God's grace. You remember that the blessed man of Psalm 1, he is like a tree whose leaf does not wither. Trees go through winter. But winter doesn't win. The fool doesn't win. Why do I say that? Because you might be surrounded by fools right now. Might feel that way. Might feel like everyone is overreacting. Everyone is weary. Amen on that one. Like everyone is grumpy. Amen on that one. But can your God shelter you from that crossfire? Can he keep you safe? Is he big enough to do it? Is he less trustworthy for you than he was for Isaiah? Less trustworthy for you than he was for Ruth, under whose wings she took refuge in the midst of famine? Can God still shelter the weary, foil the fools in your life? As you think about that, let's turn to our third and final point. The God who lets the harvest fail so that the Spirit can restore. The God who lets the harvest fail so that the Spirit can restore. Chapter 32, verses 9 through 20. From one colorful character to another, from fools and scoundrels to complacent women. In verses 9 through 11. But as Barry Webb says, let no one charge Isaiah with being a misogynist. He rebukes men far more than women in this book. But why rebuke these women now, you might be wondering. Perhaps, Webb says... Because their demeanor was a particularly sensitive indicator of prevailing attitudes. In other words, he's rebuking these women because they were guilty of this sin at this time. And he is also warning anyone, male or female, young or old, in any age, who have the same attitude, the same complacency, the same false security that assumes that they will never have to fear judgment. That attitude that says, preachers always say those things, never happens. At least it's never happened yet. And their complacency, it's particularly damning because they were wrong. They assumed nothing bad would happen. And look at verse 10. In little more than a year, you will shudder, you complacent women. For the grape harvest fails, the fruit harvest will not come. Most of Israel was trusting in Egypt or some other Savior. Surely nothing bad's going to happen to us. 
And those saviors could do nothing to protect them from their enemies. Only God could. But God chose to withdraw, to remain aloof, a la Isaiah 18, to quietly look on while the enemy invaded, waiting to see if his people would finally cry out to the Holy One of Israel. Why would God do this? And what's the this that I'm talking about? Verse 11 Tremble, you women who are at ease. Shudder, you complacent ones. Strip and make yourselves bare and tie sackcloth around your waist. Beat your breast for the pleasant fields, for the fruitful vine, for the soil of my people growing up in thorns and briars. Yes, for all the joyous houses in the exalted city, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted, the hill and the watchtower will become dens forever. In other words, homes for wild animals, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks. <clears throat> Reminds me a little bit of Job. Lost his family and his possessions, even though he had done no, no, no sin, no gross sin at that time. Reminds me a little of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Though the fig tree should not blossom, he said, nor fruit be on the vines. And how does that final passage of Habakkuk end after all the bad stuff? Back of 3.18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation because he's ultimately the God of salvation. The God who strips the city bare so that he can rebuild it better. The God who uproots every bad plant so that he can replant a better vineyard. The God who helps us die to sin so that we might live more and more under righteousness. Rebuilding stinks, especially when you're the one who is being rebuilt by God, right? Demo is not fun when God's doing demo on your interior life and your sin and your selfishness. Because isn't that God's way to tear down, right down to the studs, so that he can build it back the way he wants it without any of our ungodly plans getting in the way. I like order and structure in my life. That's why I'm very glad that all of you military folks put up with a civilian like me. You're all organized. You're all structured like that. And when the order and structure gets disturbed, I feel grumpy. Anyone else like that? Anyone else want to admit it this morning? Another story for you. My sister-in-law has been renovating a house for more than two years, I have no idea how she and her husband put up with it. Mary, you know I love you. It's your house. You do what you want. But every time she talks to my wife, which inevitably involves some conversation about the latest renovation thing they're tearing down and building new, I say to my wife, we are never renovating our house. Never. <clears throat> I built, not renovated, but built. Actually, I let someone else build a house four years ago. It's as much chaos as I can handle. I was grumpy for six months while we built it, and I've been really happy since then. One of the best decisions we've made. <clears throat> I don't like change. I don't like chaos. I like right-angled corners. I like straight edges. I like the finished product. Can I get an amen? I like the finished product. Sometimes too much. 
because sometimes I get so obsessed with the finished product or lack thereof that I miss the beautiful house that God is building around me, inside me. Because what happens after the harvest fails and God flattens the city? Verse 14, for the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. Did you notice the sentence doesn't end there? It flows right into verse 15. Until, until the Spirit is poured upon us from on high. And the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. And the effect of righteousness will be peace. And the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust or security forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Lots of parallels to chapter 30, verses 15 to 18 there as well. But unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. We will never dwell in a perfect house. I have a secret for you. Six months after you build that new house, the baseboards get scuffed. They do. It's inevitable. We will never dwell in a perfect house. We will never dwell in a perfect society. We will never be a perfect church. But if you will be more patient than your impatient pastor, then you will see God build a better house around you, a better church, a better community, a house indwelt by His Spirit, a house full of people who are bearing the fruit of His Spirit, a house where righteousness dwells, a house that is secure and peaceful, a house where sinners can rest in the finished work of Christ as they tear down their sin and their idols, the monuments that their pride has built. A house full of people who trust and rest in the salvation that God provides. Jesus told his disciples he was going to go and prepare a place for us. That's true. But there's already a house, a church, a family of God, a hospital for sinners who come to find healing and rest. May that be true of us. May God rebuild whatever he needs to rebuild in us. May God restore our fortunes, as Psalm 126 says. May those who plant in tears harvest or reap the shouts of joy. Let us pray. Oh God, you are good, and what you do is good. Father, would you create in us a clean heart, oh God, and renew a right spirit within us. Father, would you do that for the first time, if you need to, if you've never done it in one of us before? Would you do it for the 40th time? If we know that you've done it, if we know that we've come to you and said, I want to shake this sin, I want to stop doing this, I want to be who you want me to be. Father, do it for the first time, do it for the 40th, do it for the 5,000th, whatever you need to do, do it in us. Restore us, O Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.